This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. What does the new far-right movement look like? Groups that share a number of elements and that exist in different places within that spectrum. American University professor Cynthia Miller-Idris, who studies this issue, says there's a lot we can learn about how this is being handled in Europe. There definitely are connections. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we have made in the U.S. over the last decade is overlooking the global nature of organized white supremacist extremism. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. A lot of dangerous threats against the U.S. have emerged this year. Nuclear missiles in North Korea, of course, COVID-19, Russia's disinformation, and of course, there's extremism in the U.S. And on this program, we're talking with Cynthia Miller-Idris, a professor at American University who's written a book. It's called Hate in the Homeland, the New Global Far Right. And she joins us on this program to talk about it. I'd like to know, first of all, why you chose to write this book. Well, I had been, uh, really, I spent 20 years working in Germany uh, as a researcher, as a, as a faculty member of, you know, studying what I considered even myself to be fringe subcultural youth developments and school-based responses to resurgent far-right extremism. So I was studying the coding, the symbols, the modification, the ways that the aesthetics were being mainstreamed, the move away from the kind of racist skinhead, shaved head and bomber jacket and into a much more mainstream style. And uh, I finished that book, which was the second book I had written. That book was called The Extreme Gone Mainstream, turned it in, and two months later, Charlottesville happens. And so, you know, I saw the khakis and the polo shirts along with everyone else and really rapidly became aware that the same thing I had been studying in Germany for a decade or more had had really emerged here and was rapidly swept up into public conversations, public writing, testifying before Congress. I mean, it's been the most unusual and unpredictable turn in a ordinary professor's career that somebody could imagine, I think. And um and realized that uh, there was uh, that previous book had really been an academic book or a more academic book. And I wanted to write something for the public that explained what I felt was some of the things that were missing in our approach collectively to trying to understand the rising far right. And that is, um, rather than approaching it only as a question of how or why people are being radicalized or how extremist groups recruit from strategies and tactics, we also needed to ask where people encounter extremist messages in in their everyday lives. And if you look at the questions of where and you look at the spaces and places, we get a much better and more creative list of places where we could think about intervening. 
Okay, we'll get to some of that in a moment. But first, I'd like to step back and talk about the rise of the right-wing movements. Um, We, in the past, have thought about right-wing, as you mentioned earlier, skinheads and neo-Nazis, but it's a far different thing that's happening now uh, in the U.S. and abroad. And um, you mentioned the Boogaloo Boys earlier. There are other organizations as well. So talk about the rise of the modern far-right movements. So the far right comprises a spectrum of um, of groups that share a number of elements and that exist in different places within that spectrum. So one is um, anti-democratic and dehumanizing kinds of attitudes and, and beliefs about um, supremacy, whether that's male supremacy, white supremacy, Christian supremacy, right? There's different forms of supremacy, but it's a kind of us versus them mentality that that puts people in a hierarchy and that believes that one group is superior and better than another. Um, so there's dehumanization, there's anti-democratic um, attitudes and beliefs that are pro-authoritarian at, or don't protect minority rights or infringe on um, the rights of the press, let's say. Uh, and then you have um, conspiracy theories, you have single actor, you know, single issue extremist groups like anti-abortion groups, you have uh, extremist groups, you have um, uh, those that are really at the fringe motivated by violence, who are accelerationists, who are trying to bring about the downfall of systems, and you have the militias that are anti-government, right? So there's a, a wide spectrum. They don't always agree with each other. And that's why you had actually the Unite the Right rally. It was called the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville because they that was the attempt to bring together these disparate and often uh, warring factions of the right wing together and try to unify them into something more powerful, which didn't actually work. They continued to be at odds with each other, but it did bring a lot more attention and momentum into these scenes. You know, as you talk about, you know, all of these um, various components of, of, of these organizations, um, you know, who are some of the other groups? We know about the Boogaloo Boys, but there are some others. And in, in, in fact, um, there are a couple that sort of surfaced earlier this year, at least to the, to the, to the mainstream public, that were actually trying to uh, weaponize disinformation related to COVID-19. You have across the spectrum, you have groups that, and I should say there's, on the one hand, you have formal groups, and that is the history of the far right, just like the history of any civil, you know, civic action in the States, you had a lot of formal groups with actual memberships and, you know, initiation rights or, uh, you know, uh, manifestos that were formal. And there still are those groups, there are tons of them, there are, you know, dozens of actual KKK groups still around, even though their numbers are relatively small, for example in the States. But so you have a variety of white supremacist and neo-Nazi groups. You have militias, patriot militias and uh, anti-government groups. You have um, uh, these new kind of meme-based insurgencies. They call themselves calling for civil war or revolution, like the Boogaloo groups. Uh, There's a whole range, the conspiracy theorists, those who are forming new coalitions with anti-vaxxers, let's say, to promote their anti-Semitic groups, Islamophobic groups. So there's a whole wide range of them. But I think one of the things that's really important to understand about the ecosystem today is that a lot of terrorist violence on the fringes doesn't even come out of formal memberships or, or actual groups. It's not directed from cells or from hierarchies the way that we have with Islamist extremism, for example, typically. It is often organically 
kind of inspired by copycat actors or by people who are self-radicalizing online within networks of of you know image board sharing sites and toxic online communities and then take action and so a lot of the terrorist uh, actions that we've seen in recent years are not from people who hold an actual membership in a group. And that is different than what had been the case in the past. Yeah, several sources that I've been speaking to in the last uh, few weeks have mentioned this loose-knit approach that mm-hmm. these organizations seem to engage in. Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler is um, the head of the Counter-Extremism Project, or at least a senior director. And I speak with him pretty regularly. Also, in the past, I've spoken with one of your colleagues at AU, Mm-hmm. Um, Trisha Bacon, who has written oh, yeah. some material about messaging, etc. Um, one of the things I've spoken with them about in the past, and I'd like to ask your thoughts about this as well, about the possible connection between these groups in the U.S. and overseas movements. Are there any connections? There definitely are connections. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we have made in the U.S. over the last decade is overlooking the global nature of organized white supremacist extremism and not just the the, the organization of it, the ways in which they're sharing tactics and plans, but the, the networking of it and the shared kind of ideology. And so the, the major motivating ideology on the terrorist fringe in white supremacy right now is, um, is called the Great Replacement. It is a shared conspiracy theory across Europe and other, uh, and the U.S., North America, and elsewhere that believes that there's an orchestrated effort to intentionally replace white civilizations with um, uh, through demographic change and immigration and to get rid of the white civilizations. And that that way, for that reason, there's an existential threat. And that is the conspiracy theory that motivated a different form of it, but motivated the shooter in Oslo and Christchurch in El Paso. So we see that connecting across countries. We see them inspired by each other. We see them referring to each other as saints and then to their own actions as disciples. So they very much see themselves as networked but in this country, we still tend to and even label white supremacist extremism as, as domestic extremism. So we really are stymied in our ability to understand and think of it with the same kinds of tools that we think of international terrorism with. And I want to ask you specifically, as we talk about the international terrorism threat um, and the fact that these organizations are referred to as domestic terror threats, you know, the groups like an al-Qaeda or a Taliban or or ISIS and other groups, they, they can launch devastating attacks with you know, lots of violence and, and a lot of people die and are wounded and injured. Do these kinds of groups here in the U.S. carry that same, uh, uh, are they capable of that? Are they interested in doing that? They are capable of it. I mean, I think we have seen, uh, even going back to Oklahoma City, you know, mass attacks in the U.S. and and then more recent um, smaller mass attacks, but awful attacks. I think the the possibility is there. I would say that right now, in the pandemic conditions, I think the the risk of planned mass violence is a little bit reduced because there are fewer mass gatherings. The risk, however, of spontaneous mass violence um, by having heavily armed individuals ideologically show up at these protests, um, at, at you know protests against racial um, uh, injustice or police brutality, and then groups showing up to protest them or to protect the police in a variety of different ways uh, that you get groups with um, competing aims who are all heavily armed showing up together. Those 
those risks, I think, are are high in, in different and new and different ways. Um, but I don't think the risk of planned violence is gone. It's just a little bit delayed. And so one of the things that I worry about right now is how much radicalization is happening and new exposure, new pathways opening up online with, you know, 70 million young people mostly online at this moment. Uh, instead of in schools or in workplaces, uh, so that the risks of exposure with rapidly mobilizing extremist rhetoric, propaganda, misinformation, conspiracy theories online is high. And so I, I think we have to be looking at where are we in 18 months in terms of the potential for, for terrorist violence. You know, young men and um, right wing extremism uh, compared to young women. Uh, are young men more susceptible? Are they being recruited? Um, are young women being recruited? Who who are they after and how are they doing it? So it's important to note that women's engagement in the extreme far right has been increasing. And we have seen that uh, over the last several years. It's been well documented, even in the terrorist fringe. We've had um, now high profile trials in Europe that have included women who were part of those plots of those cells and uh, responsible for the violence or for being a part of it, at least on the planning side. You know, that said, uh, and women are also key to the recruitment, the softer kinds of recruitment over YouTube and to drawing both young men and young women in. Um, but men are overwhelmingly, they overwhelmingly make up the bulk of the, of the extreme far right and are overwhelmingly responsible for the violence. And so there definitely is a connection here between both the kinds of toxic masculinity or expressions of masculinity that call on language like heroic engagement, defense, um, uh, fighting back against invasions or infestations. I mean, a lot of dehumanizing language to refer to immigrants, let's say, um, but also the the language of um, acting with purpose and meaning and her heroic engagement and, and rescuing your sort of people um, does seem to appeal to a kind of warrior soldier mindset that um, is is manipulated easily, I think, online uh, and, and through language of brotherhood and belonging in similar ways that we saw with ISIS and Islamist recruiting with young men, but, um, but here framed more around the defense of white civilizations. How have the last three and a half, four years framed or impacted how these far-right groups recruit? Well, there's been a mainstreaming, a normalization of a lot of extremist ideas, both on the, you know, the aesthetics have been mainstreamed. So you have a lot more um, mainstream looking young men, whether that's through the polos and the, the khakis that we saw or, uh, you know, white supremacists wearing suits, um, you know, uh, with, uh, you know, uh, lobbying for kind of ethno-state kinds of policies. I think you have had a mainstreaming and normalization more um, from elected officials language that is, um, you know, really moved the Overton window of acceptable public policy discourse further to the right. And so that has certainly um, changed and sort of legitimized uh, the kind of rhetoric of of white supremacist extremist recruiters and far-right recruiters. And that's true on the anti-government side as well, um, on where you have a much broader range of resistance to the government, resistance to supposed tyranny, language around, um, you know, very polarized language about Second Amendment rights and about and making that about a Democrat versus Republican kind of situation. And similarly then with the shutdown and shelter in place orders, um, a, uh, a very 
a rapid mobilization around the idea of, of protecting the status quo, whether that's protecting law enforcement and bringing out these citizen vigilante groups um, or militias actually organizing sort of at the border to support ICE and, and make citizen arrests. So there is a wide, a wide range of things happening, but a lot of that over the last three or four years has been rooted in a broader acceptance of, um, of, of violent language and of the mainstreaming of kind of strong anti-immigrant and extremist ideas. You say, and uh, I have to say that um, this is brilliant on your part, um, that um, parents really have to tune in to what their children are doing, especially now, because as you mentioned earlier, so many of them are online for so much more of the day and night now. Um, that they, parents, they need to know if their children are under the influence of extremism. So what can they do to protect their children? Yeah, I have to say that the most heartbreaking part of my work is the occasional calls that we get or emails we get from a parent uh, or sometimes a school principal or teacher saying, you know, they need help, right? They Something is going on, their child has been exposed to this or radicalized and they don't know what to do. And, and you know, the fact that a parent is is put in a situation where they have to randomly Google, like, how did they find me? I'm just a professor, right? There, there are very few resources in this country, and there have been very few resources for parents to go to. Um, so we need a whole range of things. First, parents need awareness. They need to understand the risks. They need to understand what it means that you know, if your kid's online all the time, if they're gaming all the time, a quarter, 25% of, 23% of, of online gamers encounter white supremacist propaganda while gaming, right? So we, the chances of them encountering this stuff if they're online all the time, the way I argue is, you, you know, you have to assume that they're going to encounter it. So talk with them early and make sure they understand what does it look like to, how do you recognize scapegoating? How do you recognize white supremacist propaganda or misinformation and disinformation? But parents also need resources to understand how to, um, how to intervene, how to create conversations with their kids, with their the young people in their lives to, to build more resilience and reduce those vulnerabilities, to give them a sense of control over their lives. Uh, and so we partnered with the Southern Poverty Law Center and released a parents and caregivers guide over the summer to um, advise parents about the risks and uh, ways to strengthen resilience to uh, extremist recruiting during COVID-19. And that is free and available on our website, which is just www.american.edu backslash peril. That's just a starting point for parents. Um, and it has a resource list in the back that uh, directs them to organizations like Parents for Peace, which was founded by the parents of um, children who had been um, become involved in extremism to get counseling parent, you know, places for parents to get additional resources, as well as a list of, you know, uh, kind of toxic online communities and sites that they want to pay attention to, to be aware if their children are engaging on those sites or in those kind of encrypted apps, um, that those are red flags and warning signs. What are some of the steps everyday folks can take to deal with this typical, uh, this type of uh, extremism? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, it's important to note that, you know, 
white supremacist extremism rests on a foundation of white supremacy in this country. And so we need a deeper uh, ongoing engagement in the kind of reckoning that we're having this summer about issues of um, race, of structural racism, of inherited disparities. And so I think when children are raised with a better understanding of those disparities, they already are building more um, resilience to the kinds of narratives that come along and offer a different kind of explanation for what they see in their everyday lives. And so uh, I think, you know, schools have a big way to uh, a role to play here. So do parents. Um, in their everyday lives, I think people can be aware of toxic online communities and keep an eye out for the young people in your lives. We have, we're in a situation with heavily reduced um, engagement with with people in communities who would normally be able to recognize red flags. So the coaches, the part-time employers of teenagers, the teachers, the principals and school counselors, for most kids, they're not seeing those people or they're only seeing them across a screen. And so to the extent that, um, you know, that adults can keep an eye out and, and look out for the kinds of things. If you hear a child saying something about, um, a, you know, re repeating a conspiracy theory about where COVID came from or about a micro tracker being inserted into a vaccine or, you know, you hear things that say a little outlandish and they say they read it online. That's an opportunity to talk to them about where they're spending time online and make sure that there are early off ramps and counter information being provided to them um, to help offset some of the propaganda and content they might have been reading. Cynthia Miller Idris, author of the book Hate in the Homeland, the new global far right. Thank you for taking time to talk to us. Thanks for having me and uh, be well. That's it for this episode. If you have any questions about the program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com, jgreen at wtop.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. Also, if you'd like more national security information, you can find it at Inside the Skiff. That's my newsletter. And you can sign up at WTOP.com slash alerts. And of course, as always, thank you for your time. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, this is J.J. French. Through five decades in the music industry, having sold over 20 million records, performed over 9,000 shows, and receiving 37 gold and platinum albums as a musician, manager, and record producer, I'm also an author, motivational speaker, marathon runner, inducting to the Long Island Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, guitar collector, and a founding member of a little band you may have heard of called Twisted Sister. Now I'm ready to share the secrets of my survival in one of the most vicious and predatory businesses on earth, the music business. In my new podcast, The French Connection, the music Music Business and Beyond on Podcast One. Get ready to hear real inside stories from me and my famous guests as they tell you how it's really done, not just in the music industry either. I guarantee that you will always learn something unexpected from successful survivors from many walks of life. That's the beyond part that I'm so excited about. Don't miss the French Connection, the music business and beyond with me, JJ French, Tuesdays on Podcast One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Now. Stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.